It's January the 15th, 2020. This is 508, a show about Worcester. I am Mike Benedetti. This is Brendan Melican. How's it going, brother? It's going good. You know, Brendan, the TNG called our guest today Worcester's most traveled, most jailed, most notorious political radical since Abby Hoffman. So, of course, I mean Scott Schaefer Duffy. We're in pretty good company, then. Scott. Welcome, Scott. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Scott, speaking to the microphone. <laughs> Yep, glad to be here. I also look at this little screen. You see how tiny you are there? You should lean forward. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> Backbone. That's what it's all about. How are you doing? Good. Good. Speaking to the microphone, please. Oh, well. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, Scott, I want to I wanna talk to you this morning, this afternoon. But first, let's start off with Worcester in 60 seconds. The Worcester Possox Project is going to cost more than initially agreed and our public officials are fine with that instead of costing 90 million dollars the ballpark will cost 100 million dollars which the team is prepared to cover as a result it's been agreed to increase the surcharge on tickets from 50 cents to one dollar the construction cost increase is because construction costs have been increasing generally and because building on a hill is going to be trickier than they thought the city is also responsible the city is responsible for site acquisition and preparation and this is also going to be more expensive Factors include a data switching facility in the area going bankrupt and the aforementioned hill trickiness. This will increase the city's cost by $21 million. To make this move more affordable, hilariously, the city is going to increase basic parking fees for events by 2 or $3. Separately, there's now a community benefit agreement in connection with the project. This is basically the parties involved in the project agreeing to some requests from the Worcester Community Labor Coalition. The city has committed $3 million in community development block grants to the neighborhood. The contractors have agreed to diversity hiring practices, standards to state projects. And the team agrees to things like paying the minimum wage and having a community garden. <laughs> WCLC agrees that it has no right to sue if the agreement is breached and that only the city has oversight and enforcement rights. It kind of neat that only after the fact did uh, the construction folks recognize that Worcester is pretty much known for being a city of hills and that might be a challenge. I don't even know. I mean, uh, yeah, some of the stuff, some of the stuff in there I look at and I'm like, yeah, I can see how you wouldn't have predicted this. Like, like this company going bankrupt is apparently like five or $6 million yeah. more uh, because like, since they're no longer a going concern, they can't just like relocate all their gear someplace. Sure. Uh, so this is where the city's like, great. We'll just like give you some money to do it then fine, whatever. Um, yeah. I don't know. You this know, one of the things that I think is, is worth pointing out that, I, I think there's been a lot of uh, harping on the CBA, which is laughable for a number of reasons. But the things that are most funny about it, I think it's important that people recognize aren't actually meant to be funny. It's just that this is like a real estate agreement. So like you do put things in a real estate agreement that otherwise would be obvious, like that the parties uh, involved uh, intend to abide by the law. There's right? a like, lot in there that's them saying we will abide by the law. Right. Which is like, is unfortunately, like if you've ever read a deed or like, you know, a, a mortgage agreement is kind of the thing that you pack in there. And it is hilarious when you view it from the outside, but it yes. also is the thing that's in every kind of real estate agreement like that. The real problem is that, Man, we just have like boring lawyers in the city. And like, this is like a really like big thing, whether you agree with it or not, it's a big thing. And it's a perfect opportunity to have some more creative writing uh, inserted in there. Like it doesn't need to be so boilerplate. And I think that's why people find it so easy to laugh at it. But some of the stuff isn't, it, it is funny, but it's not really intended to be funny. It's just what you find in any real estate agreement. Scott Shepard, if you do care about this thing one way or another, <laughs> this baseball project. 
Well, if you do care, you should speak into a microphone. <laughs> uh, I, I feel that I have no objection uh, to baseball per se, uh-huh. but uh, I, I do question that the city can find all kinds of funds uh, continuously to throw at one business or another opportunity saying it's going to save the city. They did it years ago to the hospital. That was going to generate all kinds of things in the whole neighborhood. Right. And virtually all the employees of the hospital eat at the little cafeteria in the hospital. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, so uh, I I have concerns that now with uh, the climate emergency, which the city agreed to a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. that uh, we've got a 20, 30 year window to be jiggering all our infrastructure to deal with that. And what we're doing is building a project that's going to have a personal car garage for thousands of more cars. Mm-hmm. We're not building it with a monorail or, uh, you know, or, or solar power. We're building well, another well, old-fashioned oh, structure. I mean, there, there, let me say this. There is stuff in the CBA that says stuff like, you know, all the parties agree agree that it would be nice if there were some solar panels on this. Maybe we'll have the hookups available. Maybe we'll even build them. Who knows? Who can say, Scott? <laughs> Do you, anyway. you don't think you want to put a roof on a baseball stadium, though. I would like to challenge Scott, though, that I do have strong opinions on baseball. It is a silly sport designed for an AM radio audience, and I think it's okay to say that now. We've got better sports out there this weekend. Big Conor McGregor, uh, Donald Cerrone fight, UFC, uh, I think 246 were up to, right? I mean, like, there's okay. exciting things that are actually made for TV. We don't have to sit around pretending that we're like we're, we're sitting next to our, our grandfather, like listening to a, a 20s radio announcer uh telling us the play-by-play on baseball. It's boring. Well, think of how how progressive a sport it is in this day and age, not only to have no women players, <laughs> given it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult uh, uh, athletic uh, endeavors that are involved. Are you suggesting that women can swing sticks? Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and also, not even to have women umpires. Yeah, I don't know that either. You know, it's very unusual in, in those regards. And uh, when you could have somebody like 300-pound players like Babe Ruth and so on play well into their old age, you certainly there are certainly women, Megan Rapino and many, many others, who could probably play that sport. I don't think I've even had a female uh, whip a overpriced bag of peanuts at me at Fenway Park. <laughs> I don't think that's even happened. I want to yeah. ta- talk to Scott for a second rather than baseball or, or even Star Wars. Hey, Scott. You were hit by a car this summer, and this was like a this was like a, a story in the newspapers, a public story. How are you doing? Well, first of all, they tell me I was hit by a car. You, there's no, you don't have any I reason had a, to believe I, this. I had a concussion Allegedly. and a brain bleed, and uh, who knows how that happened? And woke up in the hospital, and uh, I was hit by a car when I was nine, and woke up after five days in a coma, and they told me the same thing, and it's alleged. It's alleged. Okay. All right. So, so you were, you were, uh, you got a brain bleed and a concussion and some bones broken in the summer. And how are you doing now? Well, I thought I was uh, 90% recovered. I still have some dizziness and some terrible memory issues. Uh, and it's not just the bad memories, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but last week uh, I had a detached retina, which they said was probably a leftover from the, uh, from the accident. Yeah. And, uh, and I went, 80% blind in the right eye, but they've, they've tinkered with it. And I'm, I'm pretty much almost, almost back. So you're not, you haven't gone blind yet. No, from this accident. No, no. And your spirits are high. 
Yeah, oh yeah. I I, I figure that uh, from the description of the accident and the, the weather that was, it was a terrible cloudburst at that time, at right at, at the uh, nightfall, that uh, I could easily have been killed. So my figuring is... I'm a I'm a, a mediocre player who made it to the playoffs somehow, <laughs> and you got to expect to be a little beaten up to be in the playoffs. And I, I've got extra innings, and so I'm grateful. That's a that's a that's an amazing attitude. To go that's back an amazing to attitude. For you. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we need to. We, we yeah, I guess you guys can keep talking about baseball. Fine, <laughs> you're the guest. Fine, I'm going to draw the line we'll at Star we'll, Wars, but baseball's going to be. We fine. will just stick to puns. How about that? <laughs> baseball <laughs> puns throughout the show. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, so last week as we were recording this show, um, I guess it was the sort of the wind down of the uh, the uh, one to two week long Cold War between the U.S. and Iran, or the the, the the flare up of the war between the U.S. and Iran, and there was a lot of peace activism stuff happening last week. Um, this week, it seems like it's no longer people's top of mind thing. I wanted to ask you, it's like Worcester's preeminent peace activist. Um, about plausible strategy of people in Worcester opposing U.S. wars. Well, uh, we held we hold a weekly peace vigil every Tuesday, and uh, three of us held down the fort yesterday at Lincoln uh -huh. Square, and we held uh, two of the signs that we held mentioned war with Iran, uh, opposition to war with Iran, and uh, the uh, the Vox Populi mm -hmm. was ninety percent in favor, but two people. Were uh, took the time to stop, put their flashes on, scream and yell. Uh, oh, really? Vitriol. And uh, one of them talked about. Uh, uh, he said, uh, "Those people have done all kinds of things to women. They've murdered and raped people." And uh, uh, I know my brother was in the military, and sure, and uh, uh, we should kill them all. Okay, and uh, uh, you know, so uh, there's still a uh, a percentage of the population that. The Iran hostage crisis might be yesterday in their minds. Yeah. And there are other people, uh, politicians, for whom the Iranian hostage crisis was bad enough. What really upset them was overthrowing the Shah, mm. was getting rid of our guy. Right, right. And, uh, uh, and we've never really forgiven them for that and uh, putting up a, a, a different regime. Now, as far as the Iranian people go, there have been lots of, uh, uh, lots of articles lately and that younger people in Iran, in Iraq, and wherever, they want what a lot of people want everywhere. They want freedom of expression. They want to be able to travel. They want, uh, uh, like a lot of people in the United States, they're not as into conservative religiosity as, mm -hmm. as their, their parents' generation were. And uh, uh, the, those forces were pushing against the government before this manufactured crisis from uh, uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. And uh, in a certain sense, uh, those forces are pushing again now that, it, uh, uh, that the Iraq government was revealed to have actually accidentally shot down this the, Ukrainian the, the, the Iran government. The Iran government. Iran government yeah. was, had accidentally shot down this, uh, you know, yeah. killed these people. And so they're back, people are back in the streets demonstrating. But uh, if the United States wanted to, we could look at other countries not as monolithic uh, uh, entities with a, a demonic leader and a demonic population, 
we could look at them as as human beings, as people like us, uh, with very much the same kind of aspirations in life, and we could do what we could to support the aspirations of the people, to throw bones in that direction. One of the funny things I found traveling is I was in Iraq in the height of the sanctions period where the U.S. was treating Iraqis horribly. And I was in a bus full of internationals, and we're on a, a, a street in Baghdad with all kinds of war devastation around, and a man comes by in a cannibalized car. It had at least four cars put together to, yeah. to make this car. And he shouts out, where are you from? Where are you from? And I said, United States, expecting some hostility. He goes, welcome, welcome. <laughs> and in country after country I visited, people disassociate the American people from the government. Mm -hmm. And in country after country that we deal with, even when they're uh, autocracies or dictatorships, we blame every single resident as if they are all responsible for what the dictators do. We don't disassociate the population. They look at us. They have no illusions about our representative democracy. They view us as, as not connected to what the government is doing. It's interesting. So we would, if we would, if we would put that in our playbook, we could uh, uh, appeal to the people in a little bit better way and support them, not heavy-handed, because then it would appear like outside in intervention, but we could at least support them with a bully pulpit and, uh, you know, and maybe we could get better relations in a future generation. And we're back. We are. Um, we were talking about something vis-a-vis -vis Iran. You know, I, I think I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, again, about just about plausible strategies on the local level. Like, I think that you and me as people of faith, we believe in the power of prayer to a certain extent. And so to a certain extent, to whatever extent these things maybe don't work in an obviously visible way, these protests and whatever, all right, fine, maybe there's some prayer value there. But um, for somebody who's skeptical of that or for somebody who's just looking at like what is obviously working, um, do you feel like any of the stuff that we do at the local level has any, is even a drop in the ocean as far as influencing U.S. policy on, on these situations where there's just gigantic forces who are already locked into certain... Uh, positions? Well, uh, let me give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, they, uh, Gary Rosen sponsored a, uh, uh, a trip to the, uh, uh, out to the Broad Meadow Brook, a bus trip. Yes. To discuss the idea of uh, free buses in yes. Western. And I took that. And uh, lots of things were said. But when they talked about the funding, uh, they talked about the funding and there was yeah. issues of, you know, can we come up with this money? But they also, they also talked about uh, uh, the fact that it isn't just that the buses had to be free. When I first moved to Worcester, there were so many buses I, on Main Street at, at least and on Chandler Street, I didn't need a schedule. I just went out and I waited no more than 10 minutes for a bus. Yeah. Now, from my house... I could walk down here to the station faster, from, uh, faster than you can get the bus, not just faster. I would see somebody oftentimes waiting at a bus stop. I would go downtown, do some business to the library, walk home and see them waiting at the bus stop. <laughs> yes. I mean, an hour, hour and a half. So it isn't just a, a, a matter of uh, making them free. It's a matter of making them as frequent as subways in New York that no one has to, you know, you don't need a schedule. You go to the subway, you wait, and mm -hmm. you get, you, you get a train. 
And this kind of change, which is what we have to do to come, uh, one of the things we have to do to combat the climate emergency, they talk about funding. Well, how are we going to pay for it? And you, when you're talking about the baseball, you were mentioning they're going to increase parking, they're going to increase this, increase that. Well, we've got to stop spending $52,000 a second on our military. That's where the money is. And when you, when you say that to people, uh, two things they say. One, they, they worry about security, and the other, they worry about jobs. And all kinds of studies studies show that more jobs are generated in the civilian economy than in the military. And the other thing is security. In my life, we've had wars on uh, f- uh, three different continents, and technically, we've lost them all. Mm-hmm. We've virtually lost them all. Even when we won, the aftermath was so disastrous that we really lost. Yeah, you, it, you, it could be a victory, but it still didn't go very great. Yes, and when, when you're spending uh, more than the next eight countries combined, and it's a failure, that's, that's pretty severely screaming, basically, for let's use that money for something else. Yeah. And, and in the city, we could talk about our schools, we could talk about our... Our, our infrastructure, we could talk about our, uh, you know, our mass transportation, we could talk about solar power, all different kinds of things we could do. The sky's the limit of what we could do if that money diverted back into the local. So I think there, you know, and I, I mentioned this, and even Gary Rosen, who's not exactly a progressive, uh, Gary Rosen was like, well, we could, we could think about that, you know, some of these things. Shutting down the U.S. military? No, at least cut. You know, oh, you didn't know uh, Gary. It, Good. <laughs> no, no, no. But making a political argument that uh, among progressives that we have to not only have a wealth tax and go after the corporate increase, you know, the mm-hmm. corporate uh, handouts that have been given by the Trump administration and so on, but we also have to go after the military-industrial complex. That money has to be diverted. We could spend a third of what we're spending and still be the largest military in the world. Mm. I mean, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. That That's screaming for a cut. And Democrats who are in the process of impeaching uh, uh, Donald Trump got a few things that they wanted in the budget, but they agreed to an in- increase in military spending. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate your answer. It was sort of a non sequitur to the questions. I want to res- respond with what's sort of a non sequitur, but not quite. Um, I mentioned this on last week's show, looking at these, you know, UN climate statistics, that um, obviously riding the bus is a better is better CO two wise than flying, but riding the bus as a single passenger is like three times worse than flying per mile. And I took the bus a couple of times this week, and I tell you, one of these bus trips, I rode to the end of the line. Briefly, there were four passengers on that bus, but the rest of the time, there were three passengers, two passengers, one passenger. And the whole time, I'm just like, this is luxury, man. I'm basically CO two wise, I am taking a private jet. <laughs> Yes, to but, showcase north. But, but that goes back to the old to the thing that I talked about about frequency. When I took buses in in the uh, in the seventies in Worcester, they were almost always full. I stood yeah. quite often, and they were going frequently. Yeah. But people use them. There's a bus I see it at Showcase North periodically. That bus goes so frequently, you'd have to bring a meal <laughs> to be able to stay there to oh. get that bus back. <laughs> Um, I take that. I've taken that bus last week. Um, it, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like the difference between now and the seventies is just that, like, um, uh, there's just a lot more car ownership now than in the seventies. There's just a lot more, and there's just so that you know, anytime anybody can own a car rather than ride the bus, 
by and large, people are like, oh, yeah, definitely. I have any extra money in my household. If I can stop riding the bus, that's a big priority to try to do. The people just don't like riding the bus. Well, um, but look at New York City, City about New car ownership. Yeah, people but, say, I don't need a car. I right, live right. in New York. But compa- well, cause that's because in New York, driving a car is insane and is a pain in the neck. So we're kind of getting to it, that we point are here to that point. in Worcester, just as a as the one like yeah. on the sh- the one person on the panel representing uh, you know severe car ownership, right? Like that's it's getting kind of miserable here. I was actually thinking while you were talking, and I, I'm surprised that maybe it has come up, and I just haven't noticed. But like I, I drive a, an old car, so I'm not uh, the best example of uh, how inexpensive it is. But like our excise tax is an is an area in Worcester that we don't really discuss that much. The excise tax on vehicles. So you own a car every yeah. year, you pay yeah. the city a, an excise tax on on the um, the the supposed the market value of the car. Yes, it's like that's an area that we don't we don't really talk much at all, and would seem to be like again a very progressive from a, a progressive taxation standpoint way of looking at. Uh, bringing back some revenue that is a is really just about uh eliminating the number of cars on the road road and i say progressive only because it's based on value so i mean the majority of those funds would be coming from folks with high dollar value cars and it's not likely to to impact too too much um bottom line type type stuff but yeah i mean there, there are revenue streams there already where we shouldn't be talking too much about like how are we ever going to afford to make buses free? Well, it's like, how are you ever going to afford to like bring that back from the dead when it sinks because the current model doesn't yes. work at all? And we just live in a, a medium-sized city with utter gridlock everywhere because all we have left are cars. Yeah. You know, I, I was at a public meeting, I don't remember the zoning board or what the heck board it was, a couple um, month or two ago. And it was interesting hearing elected officials and city employees discussing this kind of stuff. Uh, and they talked about something that I haven't heard people talk about too, too much, which is that, First of all, we're coming up on an, a point where we're, it's going to be like the most people who ever lived in the city of Worcester. Mm. And it, right? I mean, we're like breaking 200,000 people probably in the were city we, of Worcester. Were we mid over, just over 200 though in the 50s? Yeah, but we're going to be just over, just over 200. Okay. I think next census. At the same time, we're hitting this peak population. Uh, we are hitting, you know, higher, much higher levels of car ownership sure. than in the 50s. Multiple cars per family levels of car ownership, even among relatively poor families versus in the fifties. And it's not like the city is bigger and it's not like there's more roadway per person, right? at least proportionally. And so you're going to get a lot more gridlock, right? It's actually worse than you're describing because yes. you also have to figure in all the suburbs, which are formerly really just a generation removed from being representative of Worcester and residents. They're, and they're and sending all of their cars into Worcester into our city because you're not doing all your shopping them. in Sterling. That's right. Well, and, and so then on top of this, you have this interesting innovation of, uh, you know, these GPS map programs, Google maps or whatever. So now even so, so already most of the intersections in Worcester are at capacity or beyond capacity most of the day. Uh, plus, you have this thing now where if you know the, if the intersection of Chandler and uh, uh, Park Avenue is like super crazy, you know, uh, congested. In a previous era of technology, people would just have to be like, great, I have to wait 10 minutes to get through this stupid stoplight. This is irritating. Now you have this thing on your phone which can say, there's so much congestion. Have you considered driving down Mason Street? You may have never heard of Mason Street. You may never have been in Worcester before. Yeah. So now all the side streets of Worcester are, are picking up excess traffic even more than they would have because this new level of technology allows people to utilize them. Yeah. So now people who live on side streets are like, wait a second, why is there so much traffic now on my <laughs> crazy street that two people live on? How does anybody even know my street exists? Google Maps knows your street exists. Yeah. All of this coming together, 
I feel like I have not heard the clear political argument saying we have to deal with our congestion problem. And if we put this much money towards the bus, it will deal with this much of our congestion problem. So let's do that. I, ha- I mean, I- I've heard this sort of thrown around in a hand wavy way, but not mm-hmm. in a like concrete, like let's do it way or this is the benefit way. Well, the bus is only is only part of the uh, uh, part of the equation in terms of global warming. Uh Bicycles and and pedestrians are another part. And again, and not to uh, not to throw them too many bones, New York City in many of the neighborhoods has moved the parking away from the sidewalk so that the bike lane is actually yeah. uh, separated from the yes. traffic lane, which is incredibly uh, incredible for the bicycle, much much safer. And as a runner, I, I have to be honest with you, I, those bike lanes are terrific. I I was going to say, I feel like I feel like. I'm not sure that you should be the spokesperson for pedestrianism here on this show. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but the thing about it is, you know, to really uh, be able to use bikes regularly, you've got to, again, you've got to make more bike lanes. They've got to be safer. And you've got to be educating the drivers because what I see happen over and over and over, I've seen many near accidents while I'm running. You'll be coming to a... a, a you're running down a road and there's a, 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 a cross street mm-hmm. coming to you. The driver is wanting to turn right. That's mm-hmm. coming to you. They only look to their left. Right. That's all they're looking for. And in the darker hours, all they're looking for is, do I see a light coming? Mm-hmm. They right. don't even stop in those instances. They just turn right. There could be a child in a, uh, on a bicycle or somebody pushing a, a, a stroller or a runner in the crosswalk, and they would be shocked and surprised because they don't even look to the right at all. Yeah. At all. And it doesn't matter that you're wearing bright colors, fluorescent this, fluorescent that, because they're not looking. They're not, and I see it constantly. So much so that one friend of mine, uh, when he runs, he comes to, the, to these cars and he slaps the, the fender mm-hmm. to get the driver's attention. And they're like, oh, Oh, sorry. And, you know, I don't know if we have to post it or, or whatever. But the other the other thing, too, is that uh, uh, we notice, uh, they told, uh, Gary Rosen said this. We notice it at, at uh, Lincoln There's Square. There's so much quoting of Gary Rosen on the show. Well, well, at, the Lincoln, at the Lincoln Square Vigil, I noticed Are you sponsored by Councilor Rosen? Is that what's going on here? I see how many cars go I love by. this. Uh, Gary, by the way, this is a little side note. Years ago, when he used to run, <laughs> this whole show is a side note. When he used to run for office, I would see him down at uh, at Price Chopper, and he'd be passing out combs that say "Elect Rosen," mm-hmm. and uh, you know, giving me a comb. Yeah, <laughs> I said, Gary, this would not be your best approach. But anyway, uh, that that is a. a, a a little bit of a detour. But uh, uh, when, I, when I'm at Lincoln Square, I watch the cars go by. 90% of those cars that pass are single occupant cars. Yeah. yeah. And at the meeting on the free buses, they said that one of the biggest car destinations in Worcester is uh, UMass Met. Mm-hmm. And uh, that they have as many as 15,000 that people that come there every day. Yeah. And uh, and they're talking about building another parking garage. They have a huge one already. They're talking about building another because the vast majority go in single cars. Yeah. And uh, uh you know, and a, a a rational system of transportation would pick these concentrated areas, Worcester State University and have frequent uh mass transportation to take people to a place where they could leave cars. Now, UMass tried, uh, 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 Worcester State tried this for a little while where they had a parking place up on Airport Hill and they had a shuttle. 
But the shuttle came so long, you could read War and Peace. Yeah. And yeah. It, it wasn't sensible, and so people will wouldn't use it. But these things have got to be frequent and regular, and then people will leave their cars somewhere, and it's got to be free mm -hmm. for people to leave their cars. Then you will, you will see... Uh, reductions in cars and uh, increases in safety for pedestrians, bikers, and so on. I think I have a way to bring this all back to Iran, Mike. Do it. So, you know, when you're talking about um, the way Americans uh, tend to view other, other nations via the leadership versus individuals, right? I have to imagine, we could probably all agree that that has something to do with um, exposure, Right? Like we're not a well-traveled country. Uh, we tend to be a pretty insular country. Our, our, in many, many parts of the country, like a neighborhood or even a city is going to be relatively homogenous. Uh, we're living at a time where people are just starting to kind of come back to cities now, but there was all the suburban sprawl and whatnot that we had for a couple of generations. And, and our exposure to anyone is uh, that isn't just like us is so limited in this country. It becomes really easy to other, other people. But that pers perspective thing, it's interesting when we're talking about something that seems as simple as public transportation. It's actually the exact same problem that we've now gotten to a point where, where we have so little exposure to anything other than driving a car. We've arguably got two full generations now where only driving, owning a car and driving a car is the norm and anything else is weird. Uh, but we also know how easy it is to change that in both directions, right? Like in our lifetimes, we saw, at least in Massachusetts, but most parts of the country, say legislation that uh, mandated uh, helmets for at least young people. In many cases, anyone on a bike needs to ride a helmet. Now, like we can sidebar a, a debate over over safety of, of of headwear, but we do know for a fact that like the moment in time those laws came into play, uh, ridership of bicycles plummeted. Uh, the use of bicycles by children in particular just went through the floor. Uh, and you see that a lot in industry data. It's like the the second those laws came into play, Americans stopped riding bikes in the numbers that they used to starting in childhood. Uh, pedestrians, same thing. You don't have as many pedestrians on the road as you once once did because everyone drives a car. They're they're inexpensive, relatively speaking. Everybody they're ubiquitous. Um, the thing that's that that I find interesting though is that. You know, so if you take the majority of, of bikes off the road or the majority of pedestrians off the road, Scott, you're unfortunately a great example of this. Like you're still going to have accidents, but the accidents are going to seem worse uh, than they actually are in terms of numbers because the overall number of, say, pedestrians on the road is smaller. So like in Worcester, it seems like we're having this crazy number of pedestrian accidents today. Yes. Reality is we're probably having the same number of pedestrian accidents, but per capita, it's that much higher because there are fewer pedestrians uh, than, than there were in a previous time. Bikes are the same way. Bike accidents, they seem more frequent, but there's actually just fewer people on, on the bike. But it becomes a weird negative feedback loop where like the fewer pedestrians or cyclists that your average car rider sees and engages with the more, the less likely they are to be looking for and predicting yes. an engagement with those. That's the thing that we need to get over. And whether you're talking about bike lanes uh, or, you know, changing the way we, we, we structure public transportation, I still think Boston is one of the best examples of this. And in, in the 90s, early 90s, when I was doing a lot of cycling, every year Boston was rated by most of the big bike publications in the country is the least bike-friendly city in the country. Uh, Mayor Menino came in, in, into power there. He was a cyclist himself, would have his police detail following him while he rode to City Hall on his bike. Within a decade, 
you know, the early aughts, Boston was getting rated as one of the most bike friendly cities in the country, still has tons of problems, but focusing on things like bike lanes as a, as a, just a part of, uh, uh, of infrastructure upgrades as they came online, which I think we're starting to do here in Worcester, but it goes such a, such a long way. And it's easy to look at, uh, look into the future and say, man, it's going to take decades to make that come together. But as a bunch of old guys sitting here, like it's also just as easy to look behind you and say, wow, we've had decades to work on this stuff right, and we right, did right. absolutely nothing. It's, it's just so funny that like, again, 10, 15 years, we'll probably still be having this stupid show talking about like, hey, yeah. have we done enough for public safety when it well, comes to pedestrians and bikes? Uh, and it, it and it's only that nobody just got the ball rolling in a significant way that, uh, that things change. Well, the thing about it is there are, there are three factors that drive uh, these issues. One is economics, one is politics, and the other is culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, each of those things, and again, I hate to use the term over and over, but to, the climate emergency is going to push all of those to change. Sure. And uh, uh, two years ago, I went to Europe to a Catholic worker gathering, and it was really, really uh, great. I really enjoyed it. And people asked me to, to come back, various activists but a number of the others uh, wrote me specifically to say, don't come back <laughs> because I would fly. Oh. And they view that as, as a, uh, uh, basically a, a, a criminal enterprise, stealing mm -hmm. the future from their children. Mm -hmm. Although and within the context, I say within the context of the gigantic carbon footprint of the average American, flying is big, but flying is not, you know. No, but but when you start, <laughs> you could have taken about, a bus by yourself. You, you could you could go, you can go down all the way to a, a plastic straw, you know, a plastic straw flying uh, a paper, a plastic bag at the grocery store. I'm just saying they should have they should have killed you. Right, right, right. <laughs> it would have had a lot bigger yeah, impact. The lower population, if they really care that much about it. But the thing is, the the the, the culture is also changing to where uh, you know activists were holding a, a, a an event, uh, you know. Uh, there are people now that will scrutinize. Did people come together? Did they come in a you know? Did they come in a group? Did they did they bike? You yes. know, these, these things are, are really going to change to where you know people driving by themselves. Uh, you know, someone will raise an eyebrow. You know, you know, do you you know why are you doing that to why my you being children? A jerk? Why are you being you know yeah. to the, the the future? And politicians, when that culture changes, will make a difference. The other thing you said earlier about the United States and other countries, I have to say, the United States has done a terrific job at selling an ideology, a positive ideology to its population. And it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Right. So most uh, Americans like to think of us as a democracy. We never have been. We've always been a representative democracy. And even still, when you think about the primaries, you know, superdelegates being chosen in advance before mm -hmm. anybody votes, uh, a right. certain number of candidates will be in Iowa. By the time it gets to California, they'll, most of those candidates won't even be choices for people to vote for anymore. Sure. And, uh, you know, all different kinds of things that are not actually representative. Uh, and, uh, you, and in terms of economics, when I was in the 1970s, which is one of the peak uh, economic times of the United States in the last 100 years, uh, an average family of four, one person could work 40 hours a week and support a family. Mm -hmm. My father bought a small house working in a factory. Well, today, how many people do we know that both uh, people, both uh, members of uh, partners in a couple work? Mm -hmm. Everybody works. And how many of the people own their things as opposed to the bank owns them? Sure. You know, uh, but there's an illusion. There's an illusion of economic security. There's an illusion of of 
we the people. And uh, these things aren't exactly true. They can be fought back. They can be brought back to a greater extent. Yeah. But Americans and people in other countries that, that view us as not responsible to our government, their skeptical view of our system is probably more accurate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Mike, I, look, I, look, yes. I hope to live to a day, live to a time where... I was just thinking about you talking about the European climate activists not wanting you back. I, it may have been for other reasons, let's be yeah, honest. I hope to see a time, though, where like an, incident, an international incident is created because you're coming back from uh, a, a conference in Europe and uh, some angry person in, in Worcester gets a hold of the right politician uh, via email to, cl- to say that you shouldn't be allowed back into the country. So the plane is now trying to get diverted because they don't want to let Scott back in the country. And meanwhile, the Europeans are saying, no, we don't want him back because he keeps bringing that stupid plane with us. And that, that, that'll be our thing to just sit and enjoy that season of Worcester is, is watch at home as Scott just circles the Atlantic end, endlessly. It'll be like Charlie on the MTA. Well, the, the, line, the standard line, I've been kicked out of better places than this. <laughs> Brent crude oil is $64 a barrel. Today, down 6% on the week and up 9% on the year. Bitcoin is $8,800, up 10% on the week and up 141% on the year. There's one study that I want to talk about before we go here. Um, I just thought this was interesting. This connects a little bit to what we've been talking about. You know, one of the reasons, obviously, that Worcester doesn't have subways or like a massive bus system or whatnot is just because Worcester is a very uh, sprawling city. You know, we've got hills. Yeah, well, we got hills, we got hills but with. we're also we're, we're also just a sprawling city. So you know, the the the, the you know the number of residences and businesses that a bus passes per mile is a lot lower here than it is in New York City or Boston. Um, this is a paper, Urban Growth and Its Aggregate Implications by Gilles Duranton and Diego Puga. Um, I would have had to pay money to get the whole thing. So I, I'm like, I'm going to read a little bit of the abstract. We develop an urban growth model where human capital spillovers foster entrepreneurship and learning in heterogeneous cities. Incumbent residents limit city expansion through planning regulations so that commuting and housing costs do not outweigh productivity gains. We examine various con- counterfactuals to assess quantitatively the effect of cities on economic growth and aggregate in- income. Um, so uh, Tyler Cowan, uh, 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 what do you call it? That guy. He includes he includes parts of this paper. He says uh, this piece goes considerably on beyond previous research by having a more explicit model of both urban rural interactions and also possible congestion costs arising from more YMB, meaning yes in my backyard. He mentions uh, that these are some of the findings from this paper. If you were to force America's largest cities to be no larger than Miami, real real income per American would fall by seven point nine percent. You know the idea be here being that big cities. Uh, have a lot of economic benefits associated with them. Having lots of people living in closer proximity means that you just have more innovation, you have more economic activity, uh, and incomes go up. Um, if planning regulations were list, and one of the reasons we don't have bigger cities is because you just can't build bigger. You know, you can't build more skyscrapers in New York City. They're just like, forget it. Don't, don't do it. Don't do this. We're going to shut you down. If planning regulations were lifted entirely, New York City would reach about forty million people. Philadelphia, thirty-eight million people. And Boston, just shy of 30 million people. So this is, I want to read this full paper to try to understand how they come up with a number that, uh, you know, in a sort of a laissez-faire world, 30 million people would live in Boston. Huh. And we'll mention that greater Boston, metro Boston, is about 5 million people. And the Boston, Worcester, Providence, Gigano area is 8 million people. So we're talking about, you know, tripling, quadrupling the number of people living in 
this general metro area. So, you know, in a city like Worcester, if, if Worcester proportionally grew, we would go up to like having half a million people, 800,000 people, uh, totally different city. That's, totally. uh, I mean, cause I know you love Star Wars references. Yeah. I mean, all that makes me think about is, uh, when the, the, uh, prequels launched and they had those awful claustrophobic scenes of on Coruscant, which is like everything just seemed so dense and the skyscrapers were a million feet tall and you just knew that all the poor people yeah. that uh, but they were all down to the way down the bottom living in whatever well and this sludge people, was pouring off of the top there and, that's and this is presumably people moving from more rural areas into the city so you know the rural areas have less people and hopefully that's a little better environmentally for them out per, output per person under this total laissez-faire scenario would rise in New York by 6% and by 13% in Boston. That said, under the same scenario, incumbent New Yorkers would see net real consumption losses of 13%, whereas for Boston, the incumbent losses are only about 1.1%. The big winners of the new entrants, on average, real income would rise by about 26%. So they're just saying, though, that like removing the restrictions that normally come into play via zoning and planning would, would lead to this? It, they say that if um, they, they say that you don't even have to go the full laissez-faire, that if America's three most productive cities relax their planning regulations to the same level as the median U.S. city, which is the average U.S. city, real per capita income would rise by about 8%. So the reason I'm asking that, fact check me on this one because I'll forget to do it myself, but isn't it the case that Houston, uh, Texas still doesn't have zoning laws? This is, I think that this is true, but I also think that they have other laws that are in some that do some of the work that... Let's do some of the lifting of those zoning laws too. Okay. But I'm no expert in how that goes. I, I just know that, you know, yeah, that Houston does have Houston does have some some restrictions on that kind of stuff. Uh, famously no zoning laws and famously less than most cities. I just feel like these folks have probably read a little bit into a little bit too much into the fan fiction of Star Trek and they're they're now planning these mega cities and whatnot that just don't I'm kind of into it. I'm kind I of don't want to live in a city with thirty million, million people. people. I, mean, I but you you wouldn't though. I mean it, it one, I think Unless by planning, they mean like the, the limits of physics in our modern architectural design. Like, I don't think you could have skyscrapers tall enough in Boston without just making, you know, like Worcester would be part of Boston. Like if yeah. there was, a, if there was 30, there's only 7 million people in the state now, right? Like, or eight, well, I think we're at eight now overall. Because okay. um, you were talking about the census tract that goes down into Connecticut, Rhode Island. Yeah. I think in the state, we're just around eight I don't think you could have 30 million people in the city of Boston without it spilling a little bit into at least Shrewsbury. Oh, no, <laughs> like, I mean, know, I think if, I, it would I, just be one giant I wish city. I, I wish, again, I wish I had the $8 to buy this paper and yeah. I can tell you. Uh, I bet loaded it to you. Details. Anyway, I just, I just love these as thought experiments. This is, this sort of goes into the previous thought experiment we talked about on the show of like, what would it cost for America to uh, build enough housing to completely solve its housing problem? And how big would our cities grow as well, a result Related of that? then, did you see the hearing started on Beacon Hill yesterday regarding bringing back the... Um, no. You didn't see that. I didn't see I, have, <laughs> I, I don't even tell you what I, you didn't see I don't that. know anything about anything that's <laughs> happened in Boston in like the last hundred years. Uh, the, the conversation about rent control uh, coming back oh, as a sure. stable in Massachusetts, is, uh, which I think we eliminated in the mid-80s. Is that right? Okay. Uh, do you remember when that was? Yes, and they, they're saying that the rents in Boston are way outstripping yeah. incomes. Yeah. The rises and and rent control would be diametrically opposed to the kinds of policies that are being outlined outlined in this paper, which right. would be saying we should have more market, more market, can, more more market forces involved in housing and, and construction in general. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the 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 concept of rent control fell out of favor. There's definitely a lot of selfishness and uh, money grabbing that came into play, but at the same time, it was kind of based on a period when our real estate markets were tanking in many big cities. You know, like it, you didn't have the, 
you know, when you're talking like the early 80s, when rent control in places like New York started going out of fashion and Boston would go, those were not the glory days for those cities, right? Yeah. That, that was not that, that was not Times Square with uh, the M&M store, right? That was a different uh, type of urban environment, which I actually thought was a little bit more fun, but whatever. I don't get to say anymore. Um, but yeah, it seems like the, the, the idea was to kickstart development and that wasn't going to be possible with rent control in play. Now we've kind of hit the opposite extreme where uh, development is only possible to create housing units that are just going to be used as uh, tax shelters for ultra wealthy people. Yeah. Well, it's, it's probably a middle ground somewhere, a little bit of nuance. That's this week on the 508 Show. Scott Shaver Duffy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I hope your health continues to move in the right direction. I'm in overtime. nice well that's all for this episode we'll see you next time and remember Worcester you can bench more than you think you can